This episode of Grid Forward Chats was recorded during the virtual Grid Forward 2020 event with a live audience. Welcome to another episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. These podcasts are hosted by Grid Forward Executive Director Bryce Yonker. Uh, but Hunter, over to you. I know I know. we talked about a, the discussion into the event uh, earlier on in the event. You said, sure, let's have a conversation. So um, Hunter's going to facilitate our, our closing discussion here. It's really going to be about what do we need from our grid here in the West? What does our grid need to do to accommodate the deeply decarbonized future that was referenced a couple times in our in our recap here? So Hunter, you get to facilitate this discussion with Elliot and Ralph, and we really look forward to the conversation. Nice, thanks so much. My name is Hunter Lovins. I am president of Natural Capitalism Solutions. We work with companies, communities, countries on ways to implement more regenerative practices profitably. I've been fooling around in energy since around 1972, uh, as in before it was a polite subject, and have been uh, very proud to be a colleague of Ralph's for many of those years. Elliot, this is, I think, our first time interacting, but uh, hey, boys, let's have some fun. So first, uh, if I could ask the two of you, Ralph, you first, Elliot, you second, who are you? Why are you here? Thank you, Hunter. Um, I'm Ralph Cavana from NRDC. I started at NRDC in 1979 as the director of the energy program, and I appear before you 41 years later as the co-director of the energy program, which will suggest to Hunter and others that my prospects for advancement in the institution are limited. But over that period, I will acknowledge a remarkable trans- transformation over that time. It, it, because if Bryce asked the question, what, what do you want from the grid in aid of a clean energy transition? And when I arrived at NRDC, I think the answer was largely within the environmental community, nothing whatever. Uh, when uh, David Brower, who was the charismatic head of the Sierra Club of that era, Hunter will remember this, was asked by John McPhee as part of an interview in a wonderful book called Encounter with the Arch Druid. The Arch Druid was David Brower. And McPhee asked him if there were any acceptable source of electricity supply from his perspective. And David Brower paused and then finally responded, flashlight batteries. The conversation has advanced since then. And I am delighted to be part of a conversation about why I regard regional grids in general and the Western grid in particular as an essential clean energy partner. Uh, part of it's because I've had a chance to learn about the Western grid from, from, from some extraordinary people. And I, grid modernization has been a theme of electricity policy conversations for as long as I've been at NRDC. I think it's important to acknowledge that a fair amount of grid modernization has actually happened. And that some of the people responsible for it are part of this forum. It's happening at both local and much broader levels. Some of the people who've contributed the most to it are former colleagues of Elliot Mainzer. And I think of the BPA chief engineers with whom I've worked, Vicki Van Zant, Brian Silverstein. Elliot, I remember when the Bonneville Operations Center had an analog display for the Western grid. It's been upgraded substantially since then, and the same can be said of the California ISO operation system where Elliot now presides. 
no one has previously headed both the Bonneville Power Administration and the California Independent System Operator. Uh, I am delighted to be part of a conversation with the first person to do it. And I think perhaps, Hunter, we should let Elliot introduce himself. Well, thank you. I hope just a quick sound check since I've just, you guys hear me okay? Just want to make sure yes. the connection is good. So, um, well, first of all, it's it's great to see everybody. Uh, Bryce, to you and your team, congratulations on really, I think Grid Forward has come so far last few years and your leadership has been tremendous. It's great to see the, the folks you've assembled. And Hunter and Ralph, I've, I feel like uh, when I look back, I feel like I've been playing catch up with you guys for years. You've been two uh, great inspirations for me uh, for many, many years. And you know, it's it's wonderful. I'm I'm two weeks into the job here, uh, heading up the the Kaiso. Uh, started literally uh, two weeks ago yesterday, and and um, you know, coming off of uh, 18 years at at Bonneville Power Administration, uh, including the last seven as the uh, administrator and CEO, and, and Ralph, of course, one of my principal partners for years and years on on many things. And you know, I really grew up, um, you know, the last you know, 18 years really. Um, caring deeply for, for our infrastructure, for our markets, and of course, the future of renewables. Uh, I also have been very well bred uh, with the customer perspective and, and doing things efficiently and cost effectively and remembering the people that we, that we are ultimately serving, uh, and obviously with a profound sense of responsibility for, for reliability uh, and, and adaptability. And so when, uh, when Steve Burbrick, the longtime CEO at the Kaiso announced his retirement last year. Just a, an amazing leader who's done great things here, and that job opened up. Uh, it felt like something I, I just had to put my name in the hat. Fortunately, it worked out, and I'm down here now and, and uh, super excited. Uh, probably the biggest thing I'm excited about is not only, you know, it's, it's obviously a pivotal time. It's been some choppy few weeks down here, uh, a couple of hiccups on the path to the decarbonized grid, but, you know, good learning experience, good leverageable moments, uh, good pivot point. Uh, but probably most of the thing I'm most exciting, what's great about the, you know, this forums, others, just, just I always look at my job as, as sort of harnessing uh, the intellectual capital of our industry, finding the best ideas that are out there, collaborating, working with people, and then getting those ideas right into the heart of dispatch uh, so that we can really run an efficient trans transmission system and enable uh, that next generation of supply side and demand side resources that we're going to need uh, in this big transition. So it's wonderful to be here. I appreciate the sort of spontaneous hop in and Hunter. Thanks for facilitating us today. Thank you to both of you. Let's get into it. Uh, I once asked Howard Allen when he was uh, chair of Southern California Edison, what will it take to have transformation in the electric utility industry? He shrugged and said 25 years and a new CEO. So Elliot, welcome to the hot seat. <laughs> We're here to talk about deep decarbonization and a new report out of Australia by uh, Ian Dunlop, uh, David Spratt, cites uh, John Schellenhuber, who for many years ran Potsdam. If we continue down the present path, there's a very big risk that we will just end our civilization. The human species will survive somehow, but we will destroy almost everything we have built up over the last 2,000 years. This report, the uh, Breakthrough Climate Reality Report that just issued, says we are way behind the speed with which we need to be decarbonizing, and that we essentially have to decarbonize by 2030, not by 2040 or 2050, as the UN said, 
the report lays out some science that it's very likely we will hit the Paris Agreement 1.5 degree C increase in global temperature above the, uh, the pre-industrial level by 2030, business as usual. So if we wish to avoid that, we are going to have to divert from business as usual. In that context, what's the use of a grid? The use of a grid. Elliot, you start. Okay. Well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try to go into the, the, the headspace I think you're trying to get me to. First of all, I will say, you know, one of the things that really attracted me about coming down here in California is I think that there is a pretty strong and abiding uh, general agreement with, with what you just articulated, which I think certainly our governor and I think others, really, the state uh, takes decarbonization very seriously. You know, the other state agencies, technology, service products, the utilities, we're all, we get it and we feel, a, I think, a, a significant sense of urgency around this. I think the definition of grid also is is changing and I'm actually excited about that. I think that you know, we start talking about distribution system operators and wholesale grid operators and non-wire solutions. And then we're going to build this new piece of connective tissue that we don't quite know what it looks like yet between the distribution side and the transmission side and trying to figure out how much control will there be at that interface, who runs that, uh, what gets dispatched. And then also recognizing that, that the definitions of visibility and 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 transparency are going to change as well as devices get smarter and smarter. And I think system operators like myself are going to learn how to have confidence in technology that isn't under direct control of the grid operator anymore. And, and I think that when you see what just happened here in August, uh, where we where we started coming into, you know, getting onto the edge of power system capability, what you recognize is whatever definition of grid you've got, you need to harness every last nanowatt of both supply side and demand side flexibility and capacity that's out there. And of course, Ralph is always going to tell you it starts with energy efficiency. I've always been a believer in that. Uh, those megawatts are the gift that keeps on giving. But we're putting a lot of resource behind the meter now. So, so in a, I think I heard Steve Kearns talk about Mark and others. How do you now line up all that infrastructure with the right price signals? to get the services you need at the time you need them. So I'll stop there and, and see what Ralph has to say. Well, I, I was very confident that either Hunter or Elliot would make before I needed to the point about energy efficiency is the cornerstone of the transition. I will happily reaffirm it. I think, Hunter, that in speeding up, which you have called our attention to and reminded us, and the speeding up is absolutely essential, what I want to say to all of my friends who join me in urgently wanting to speed up is that the grid operators, the grid managers are going to be essential partners in this if we're going to go as fast as Hunter wants us to go. That is, we can't we can't try to shove them out of the way. We can't try to wish them out of existence. We need them as fully committed partners. And as you listen to Elliot Mainzer, for those of you who might be skeptical, I'm hoping you'll re-examine your skepticism. He gets it. And a lot of other people who are leaders in this sector now get it. Hunter Lovins will not, I think, she, she may have been uh, right, and Hunter, uh, it, it, and Howard Allen may have been right about the 25 years in his era. It is important to acknowledge, for me to acknowledge that Howard Allen then got succeeded by a co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council, John Bryson. So it actually didn't take 25 years. But now you have the Southern Company, Duke Energy, 
all of, I think, all of the leaders across the electric sector in North America committing to decarbonizing and establishing targets to which they can be held accountable. And as someone who has participated with some of them, including Portland General Electric in the Northwest, including Southern California Edison in the south, Southwest, these are commitments to which a considerable part of the enterprise is now fully engaged. It's part of the business model. It's where they want to be. It's what they want to do. A lot of us need to be involved with them and to spur them along. But we're not pushing uphill the way Hunter remembers having been pushing uphill in the 1970s and early 80s. And that, Hunter, is part of why I take some heart at the prospect of speeding up, because the critical institutional partners that we didn't have them are there with us now. Well, that is indeed good news. And indeed, summer a year ago, when Los Angeles Department of Water and Power uh, signed up a deal with uh, GE to do utility scale solar plus batteries, because GE had just said, we're going to walk away from a natural gas peaking plant with 20 years of life left on it. We are seeing the beginning of the transformation we need. It's just coming entirely too slowly. So this March, PG&E, looking at the likelihood of uh, PSPS, public safety power shutdowns, said, we'll just order up a bunch, bunch of diesel generators. What? And indeed, literally four days ago, it was announced PG&E may cut power to 48,864 customers, again, PSPS. Guys, where are the batteries? Where is the commitment to rooftop solar? Where are the microgrids? How come PG&E has been allowed to exit bankruptcy when for decades it has taken the money it ought to have been spending in upgrading its lines or undergrounding its lines or shifting to these renewable technologies and instead paid it off to its investors. Can an investor-owned utility deliver the deep decarbonization that we need? And if it cannot, then what option are we looking at? Um, I'll take an initial stab at this. I have a feeling Elliot will have something to say. Hunter, I have been aggressively agnostic about the form of utility ownership for four decades because my perception is that there are strong actors and very weak actors in both forms of ownership. So I, I don't think you're signaling a theological commitment to either approach. Uh, my, my view is that both can work and that there are stars and laggards in both categories. Um, I think on the, on the specific question of resilience and reliability, what I want to insist, and as someone who from time to time advises PG&E, so full disclosure, I assure you that they're not committed to small-scale diesel gen sets as, the, as their vision of the future. And it is important to remember that PG&E by the mid-1990s had achieved the lowest carbon emissions per kilowatt hour of any major utility in the country. And right now, as I look at leadership in decarbonization on both the natural gas and the electric side, which we're going to need, Hunter, you need to be provide. What I really want you to be saying, in addition to some well-justified criticisms there, is that you think it is very good news that PG&E is aggressively planning to decarbonize the entire system, not just the electric system, over the course of time that you just identified as critical to decarbonization. 
So let's hold everybody to account in terms of what they now deliver. But I think it's time to shed some of the ancient enmities uh, over battles that often were fought uh, well before the memory of some of our audience and really ask the question, what do we want our power sector leaders to be doing? What are the objectives that we need together to be setting? And we've been reminded in previous sessions forum that there are a lot of people who need to be at the table to do that. But what I want to get people to resist is the temptation that you could somehow wish all of this away. Imagine an electricity sector completely populated by devoted proponents of instant decarbonization and somehow think that that kind of a world can happen and can move us forward. It won't. And the faster you get about the task of pushing these critical partners to more aggressive action, using both positive and negative reinforcement, Hunter, I think the faster we'll get to where you want us to go. Now, now Elliot is going to no doubt want to uh, propound a theological view on the right form of utility ownership, or perhaps not. No, I, I, sort, of, I, I sort of tend to be more in the church of agnostic there as well, Ralph. I guess for me, what, where I would go with that response, just looking at what's happening inside the state here where where resource planning and procurement decisions are increasingly on the power side have moved away from the utilities to a certain degree and actually the utilities themselves have for a variety of reasons been stepping away from you know the power side and moving more especially as the community choice aggregators take on a bigger piece of the load serving responsibility moving more into wires I look at them as the grid operator uh, ultimately as essential partners uh, in mapping out the grid architecture that we're going to need for all of this technology innovation. I mean, they're, they're going to continue to own significant amounts of distribution infrastructure, which is going to be the starting point for all those power packs in, in, in people's, you know, basements and all the distributed energy resources. And we have a whole sort of piping, a whole, there's a whole sort of pathway from literally planning to distribution interconnection all the way through multiple jurisdictions and transfer points all the way to the dispatch node on the power system in the wholesale market that we have to map out to, to eliminate friction there. And I think also making sure that there's a, a, a positive business case for everybody along that chain is going to be really important. So I'm actually, one of the things I'm really excited is working with Edison and working with Temper, working with the guys at PG&E who are, you know, starting to, to move in that direction to make sense because we're going to have to take the friction out of those interconnection points in order to really unleash particularly the behind the meter stuff. So that's an area that I'm excited to learn more about. Oh, and Hunter, just one other thing, quickly, just in response to your point. The one thing that we can take, the recent California rolling blackouts lasted two days. They were not unprecedented. They did not shut the state down. But they did elicit something that speaks to your question. They elicited the most fervent and sustained and effective burst of cooperation among the publicly owned utilities, the investor-owned utilities, the community choice aggregators, the battery and DG providers, everyone together, three weeks of two ghastly Western heat waves, which you remember, no more interruptions of service. That ethic of cooperation needs to be strengthened. Elliot's going to be a critical part of institutionalizing it, but that was a very hopeful sign. Sure. And, you know, I will applaud anybody's step in the right direction, but I do get the feeling of the old quote of, oh, Lord, make me chaste, but not quite yet. The uh, We knew about PSPS well more than a year ago. St. Augustine, I think, Cutter. Yeah. Yes, we did. <laughs> it is still 
according to the PUC, harder to hook up a microgrid than to hook up any other kind of generation. And the PUC has said, right, okay, well, we're, we'll try to get around to making it a little bit easier. But aren't we coming reasonably close to the question of if the, we used to have a social contract between the public and the utility. Yep. The utility had a duty to serve, the public had a duty to pay. Whatever the PUC said as the rate, the public paid because you flip the switch, the lights are there. That is no longer true. Has not the utility sector breached the duty to serve and thus shouldn't there be a much more robust conversation around what do people have to pay into the utilities? This then gets to the equity question that Turn has always been whining about of people like me will leave the grid. I have a five kilowatt solar array on my ranch. I have simplified batteries in the garage. The recent power outage we had, I hardly noticed all the clocks blinking again. Now, I'm not home right now, and my system is chunking out kilowatts, which are going off to my utility. They pay me a derisory amount, but they pay me. And as long as they are reasonable about this, I'm reasonably happy. At the point at which they become grumpy, I will put on a few more panels, which now cost dramatically less than when I put my first set of panels on, add a few more batteries, cut the tie, and say adios. People who don't have my ability to do that are now left holding a grid with more and more and more stranded assets. Here in Colorado, our supposedly responsible by nature utility, that's their tagline, Excel Energy, intends to hold on to two of its big coal plants until 2041. It's like, come on, please. Can we uh, get on with this deep decarbonization just a little bit sooner? Elliot, you want to go first? Okay. I don't, I, I, I'll take your lead, Ralph. I don't, I, I, I take the, I, Hunter, I think I guess I take your point. I, Ralph, what's your thought? Well, I, I think in forums like this, my principal function is always ch cheering Hunter up. Uh, one of the things I'll point about, Hunter, as, as I think she just revealed, really is not a typical user of electricity on the Excel grid. And while I acknowledge that she can and will carry out at any moment the threat of islanding yourself completely and going on happily without any engagement, whatever, with the Western grid, as she rightly points out, almost no one else is in a position to do that. So for me, the issue is what are the strategies that are going to yield affordable and reliable service for everybody? Hunter will take care of herself under any circumstances, while at the same time driving us toward our decarbonization objectives. And there, Hunter, I don't think that the electric sector as a whole is breaching the social contract. I don't think you can say that at this moment. It is important to recognize that the electricity sector is going to, at the end of 2020, reach the objective of the clean power plan 10 years early. That is, remember, the EPA Clean Power Plan, in the face of enormous opposition from some, directed the electric sector to cut its emissions by 32% by the year 2030. We're there now. We'll blow through that. We'll speed up. So, Hunter, the, the, on the specific issue of public safety power shutoffs, which are, I think, uniquely an affliction of the PG&E system, which is the Florida-sized, remember, it's a Florida-sized system, 
A lot of it's sparsely populated, a lot of it running on granite, so you can't really underground it. And what PG&E has taken on, and this is how they'll be judged, is the obligation to cut the frequency of those events significantly, to restore the system much more rapidly. But after what happened in the 2017 and 2018 fire seasons, I would ask everyone to have some understanding of why even the PG&E system and portions of it that are being interrupted might recognize that these are extraordinary times. I think that public power safety shutoffs will be increasingly less frequent because the system is being upgraded very rapidly. And I think PG&E will answer your skeptical questions in the most powerful possible way by leading a decarbonization transition that will involve the entire system, not just the electric system. But we recognize, Hunter, that you're going to be a skeptical observer, and we, uh, I, I'm candidly happy to have you there doing it, but I think we'll have plenty to tell you going forward, and Elliot's going to be part of that because he's managing the whole grid that runs through that Florida-sized system. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way, you don't miss a single chat. And learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now, back to the show. Yeah, actually, uh, there were more utilities than PG&E in the PSPS. And yeah. the Zog fire this summer, uh, which killed three people, is again likely to have been caused by a PG&E uh, system failure. So uh, this here wreck ain't over with yet. Uh, you say this is going to happen very rapidly, and I actually think you're quite correct, although not necessarily for the reasons that you're citing. I'm a big fan of the work of a man named Tony Seba, Stanford prof, Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Tony wrote in 2014 in a book, Clean Disruption, and then has since put out various papers and videos on this, that by 2030, essentially the world will be renewably powered because of four things, fall in the cost of solar, fall in the cost of storage, the electric car and the driverless car, that these together will, the, the economics of these, let alone any concern about climate, no polar bears required, the economics will drive a very rapid transition to renewable energy. If this is the case, then any utility assets that are fossil-based are stranded. Now, this is obviously a much bigger problem for the rest of the fossil industry, and the coal industry is rather nicely going away on its own. But Carbon Tracker recently estimated that the about to be stranded assets of the fossil industry amount to 25 trillion. And they said peak fossil 2023. When I recently talked to uh, Mark Campanelli, the founder of Carbon Tracker, he said peak fossil 2020, we've hit it. From here on, it's going to be a downward slide and a very rapid one. And yet I see no recognition of this in any utilities thinking. They are all still out in the 2040, 2050 range. What about stranded assets? So I, I will now, once my, my role in life is to be the uh, occasional uh, disagreeable in, in, in influence in these conversations. Hunter, they get this. Look, the utility sector has written off half of its coal generation in the last 10 years, half of it not a small fraction. This morning, the Boardman coal plant, which you remember starting up, 
it shut down as a result of an agreement to accelerate the depreciation of those assets, which Portland General Electric managed very well. And all over the West, the depreciation schedules of fossil generation are being revised and renegotiated. This is a robust sector. It's not going to be driven under by this transition. It's going to profit from this transition, and the not, and the, including the nonprofit utilities are going to be able to be part of it. It is a false, it is a false dichotomy to suggest that the only way we can have decarbonization is by bankrupting the entire sector that needs to be part of overseeing and facilitating and accelerating that transition. And you don't want that to be the message because if that's what they're hearing, they're not going to be nearly as helpful as they need to be in getting us all where we need to go as quickly as possible. So I rejoice in the fact that Portland General Electric will not go bankrupt as a result of shutting down its Boardman asset in 2020 instead of 2040, which is when they originally wanted to do it. Elliot, you remember all of that. I do, I do. And I would say that, you know, here just in, in my universe, um, you know, I think it's in, in, inside California. I mean, I think we've seen just recently that today, you know, in 2020, we still have a pretty active natural gas fleet that is, you know, playing a role in, in, in reliability. But I think that there is, I think, widespread understanding, uh, including inside the IPP community, that the trajectory is for additional fuel displacement of those resources where they, where their dispatching capacity factors is going to be on the decline. And, and they move from being an energy resource to a super clean capacity resource. And we have to get the pricing right for that. And, and over time, uh, you know, there, there's an amortization of that resource. But, you know, I, 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 I guess I, I, I appreciate Ralph's uh, perspective on this because I tend to agree with him, having been a, worked with a lot of the CEOs of these utilities in the last several years, whether it's through EPRI or the Western Electric Industry Leaders Group or just day-to-day -day working with Maria Pope and, and you know, up there in Boardman at PGE, they are embracing this trend and they see value and they see opportunity. And I think it's, I think there is some positive exhortation for, for all of us in the sector to keep going and just keep doing it better and better. This transition, Ralph. Yep. Who ought to profit by it? The utility structure, and again, the whole rate basing and the way in which their investors are rewarded, is based on the notion that they own used and useful plant in service. So if they are to profit by this transition, does this mean that they own these renewable generating assets? And indeed, many utilities are trying to build renewables as fast as they can for exactly that reason. But would it not give greater resilience to have more of these panels on people's roofs owned locally? Yeah. Germany, for example, communities have gone entirely renewable, owning the generation asset, whether it be the solar panels or a wind machine. And the profits from that are now paying off the debts of the community, paying the expenses of the community. Uh, South Australia is already half renewable, well on its way to being perhaps 100% renewable by 2030, in part because of Elon's big battery, and in part because they they just couldn't stay connected to the rest of the Australian grid. Their answer is deep decentralization, and from an economic standpoint. 
or from a social equity standpoint, wouldn't deep decentralization be the cheapest, fastest, best way to achieve deep decarbonization? The audience is wondering whether that's a comment or a question, but I'm going to take it as a question. And I will say, first of all, Hunter, absolutely, there's no reason whatever for monopoly ownership of renewable assets. The utility sector shouldn't aspire to that, and the business model doesn't require it. There, and yes, we need earnings models that are based on more than what I think you once called sheer tonnage of capital invested, and there are plenty available. But there is one place where we do need centralization, I think, Hunter, and maybe this is the note on which to close the forum. We do need well-managed big grids to take advantage of geographic diversity of those locally owned renewables, to maximize reliability uh, and to reduce costs. And the fact that we still have a severely fragmented Western grid with 38 balancing authorities, which are not idyllic little utopian strongholds of independence, Hunter, but artifacts of an obsolete system that should be gone uh, we should be we should have a fully integrated Western grid able to take full advantage of all of the different renewable energy strengths of a vast and glorious region. And it's the evolution toward that full integration that's a big part of what the group gathered here for this forum is about now and will continue to be about. And Hunter, it may even reach that little uh, enclave of yours with all of its glorious self-sufficiency because heaven knows the rest of the West can benefit from access to all that you've installed there. Well, you know, it, it raises an additional issue, Ralph. You, you've been one of the world leaders calling for efficiency. Uh, Elliot mentioned the, the phrase megawatt. Megawatt actually was a typo in a Colorado PUC document. And we said, oh, uh, you have a typo here. It says megawatt, you mean megawatt. Henry said, megawatt, that's what we're talking about and it has now entered the vernacular. What's the price of a megawatt compared to what's the price of renewable energy with uh, the this race for what I call the Walmart award for everyday low price going back and forth between Abu Dhabi and Portugal of 1.5 to 1.3 to 1.1 cents per kilowatt hour for utility scale solar. Uh, Excel put out this bid, uh, they wanted 1100 megawatts, they said y'all bid, confident that natural gas would win. They got 58,000 megawatts bid, gas came in at four, wind a bit below two, solar a bit above two, wind plus solar plus storage, three cents a kilowatt hour. Excel said no. Uh, solar tariffs, bid it again. Everybody bid it again, same price. But, uh, but Hunter, Elliot what's the, what's Elliot the utility Mays cost of a megawatt, yep. which tends to be what three to five cents a kilowatt yep. hour? Doesn't have to be. Elliot Mainzer's Pacific Northwest has averaged two cents a kilowatt hour or less for the past two decades. And part of so you are asking the right question. We want energy efficiency in that competition. It's too bad that those bids didn't include the opportunity to offer efficiency into the system. And I remain confident that efficiency will do well in the competition, including as we electrify transportation, where I remind the audience that the, the, when, when Howard Allen's successor gave me a ride in an electric vehicle 25 years ago, it got 
four miles per kilowatt hour, and the current fleet of light electric vehicles gets about three miles a kilowatt hour, and I have this sneaking suspicion that we could do better, and we better try. Elliot, your thoughts on all this? I guess at the end of the day, Hunter, you know, it, I, I agree. I love, uh, Ralph said it nicely. I mean, I, I love having you out there exhorting us to greatness. You know, that's that's what we need, and it's good to have that that force, and you've been doing it for a long time. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always, the soft path was, you know, something that influenced me early on. So I, I really appreciate that. I, I guess I do share uh, some of Ralph's uh, optimism. I, you know, personally, you know, particularly here, I, I've, I've never really had too much of an aversion watching somebody make a reasonable rate of return doing the right thing. Uh, and, and I think also for me, the thing that I think it's really important, a, a guiding principle for me too, is with all the talk about the utilities and all the talk about the technology service providers, and who's making money, et cetera. Um, I think it's really important that we, at the end of the day, we also really remember the, the customer and the consumer. You know, that's going to be something, a real guiding principle for me. You know, obviously at the ISO, job number one for us is reliability. And then as we think about technology and we think about grid architecture, and we think about all these new resources coming in and we think about the end game, which is decarbonization, uh, certainly for the state and the policymakers here, how do we do that as efficiently as possible? And, and how do we do that urgently? How do we do that reliably? And at the end of the day, so that, so that the other side, we have vibrant communities. You know, when we talk about that equity issue, you know, we need to have affordability. We need to have access. We need to have plurality of views. We need everybody a chance you know, to have a bite of the apple and get their input in. So those are important pieces as well. And I, I'm feeling just very grounded there uh, and, and excited. So it's been fun being part of this conversation. Uh, appreciate everything you guys are doing, Ralph. Looking forward to seeing you officially down maybe in the Bay Area. It's great to be here. And, and uh, again, to, to Bryce and everybody, a fabulous program uh, with, with Grid Forward. Wow, what a what a step up over the last couple of years and to see lots of great faces and, you know, hats off for a successful event. Oh, thanks. Not not an easy task. Hunter, thank you for a lively, as always, discussion. Um, Elliot, congrats on the new role. We're really looking forward to the leadership coming with the evolution of, of the, the Cal ISO and Western markets. And Ralph, uh, thank you for your insights and your leadership uh, in pushing a renewable future ahead, not only in the, in the region, but, but across the globe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats, our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region.